0: Sometimes you just can't get away. The disciples had gone out on a mission for Jesus, and they'd done some amazing stuff. It was super successful. I mean, they had expended themselves. They had cast out demons. They had healed people. They had they had uh, taught, and they, they just it was incredible only problem was when they got back with Jesus on the north shore of Galilee, people were even more enamored and the crowds were even bigger by the thousands of what had been before. It was so busy and so much that they didn't even have time to eat. So Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey guys, I know, let's go on a retreat together. To which Peter and the boys were saying, now that's what I'm talking about. So they got in the boat and went away. But here's the problem, if, if you don't know, the, the, the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, the, like the hills go straight up from the back of uh, Capernaum and the, the villages that are right on the seashore. And there's these, these valleys and these ravines. But all you got to do is go up on this, you know, about 100 yards, 200 yards. You can see the whole seacoast. So it's really hard to sneak away in a boat out on the water. And as they started to sneak away or trying to kind of row their way over to their personal retreat, they could see people running along the shoreline, up in the hills, following them. Peter and John, the guys were standing up, go, go back, go back. You know, don't come. And they were shouting and yelling, but here's the deal. They thought they convinced people to stop it. Because they didn't see anybody running between the bushes for a while. But when they came around the bend of the bay, where they were going to uh, have their little retreat, there on the hillside were thousands and thousands of people already there waiting for them. To which Peter and Andrew and James and John, the fishermen in the group, they start rowing, trying to go the other way, until it happened again. Jesus said, no, stop. He said, I've got compassion for these people. They're leaderless, they're groping. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're hungry, and I can feed them. I can make a difference. So they pull into shore, and Jesus starts teaching. After an hour or so of that, the disciples come to him and say what they've been wanting to say all afternoon. Jesus, people are getting famished. We're miles away from their homes. We're, mile, we're a long ways from even the closest village. And even if all these people went to that village, they're gonna overwhelm the village looking for food. You gotta let them go. Send them away. Compassionate thing. But Jesus said a very strange thing at that point. He sat down in a rock like rabbis and teachers always do. And said, You feed them. To which the disciples said, That's a good one. Uh, Jesus, Jesus isn't laughing. And it was like, what? How how can you expect us to, what in the world? And finally, Jesus relieves their anxiety and says, okay, listen, how many loaves do you have? They went out and looked. Andrew came back with a little kid. The answer was five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus said, okay, have everybody sit in groups on the hillside. And what he did then was so incredible. It was probably his greatest miracle yet. He began to break the bread and break the fish and he kept breaking it and breaking it and breaking it and breaking it. And pretty soon, all the baskets were sent out. People were, had eaten to the full. They sent back 12 baskets of food uh, back in. And, and it was just a miracle. It was wondrous. But here's the weird thing. Maybe you don't know this about the northern Galilee, but we here in northern uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, we are the center, we are the epicenter of the zealot military movement. The movement of the, the Roman or the Jewish vigilantes against the empire and against the Herods, the puppet Herod kings that are the puppets of Rome. We are the ones that have rebelled. In fact, right up there on the hill in the Golan Heights, just to the east, there's a town up there that can look down on where we are right now and see where we are right now. And that is the place called Gamala that started this whole zealot thing. So to the people sitting there on that hillside, this wasn't just a family potluck. This was the launch of a revolution. And they tried to grab Jesus and make him be their king because he wanted him to do to the Herods and to Rome, to the empire, what he had done to that bread. They wanted him to break it. And Jesus was all about that but not in the way they thought. He was about a different revolution, a revolution that would not break people, but break the bonds of ideologies and break the bonds of of war and break the bonds of hurt and pain and change the world while he changed every life in the midst. That's what he was about. And that's what he was asking us to trust him for just a little bit more. That is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that story? And it, what's interesting, maybe you didn't know this. What's interesting is that story is in every single one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Every single one of them report it. Every one of them talk about it. Two of the, those Gospel writers were there, John and Matthew. Luke got his information from hundreds of people. Mark got his information from Peter. So they were all there. They were all there in one sense, in one way, and they all put it in their gospel. See, up to this point, we've seen in Mark that Jesus has power over demons and and uh, sickness and nature. Now we see he's got uh, power over, you know, quantitative physics and groceries. He was all about not... <clears throat> breaking people, per se, other than breaking them in the right place, breaking their heart for what God wanted to do in their lives. And now we're beginning to see through this miracle that he's all about this, we're starting to see that this miracle goes right to the center of the gospel, right to the center of the kingdom of God is here. And, And Mark, in his typical fashion, he shortens the story, but as he does that, he gives it powerful, emotive language, and it packs a punch. In fact, there's some stuff in here that uh, maybe you haven't been told before. Maybe you haven't been told how it is the center of the gospel, this story. That, and, and therefore, it is a part of what we've called the untold story of Jesus. So I invite you to turn with me if you're... Um, New with us, you're welcome to read off the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you can read off the screen or that little screen you have on your phone. Just turn off the ringer, please. Uh, But we're going to be in the sixth chapter of Mark, starting at verse 30. And here's uh, how the story begins. The apostles gathered around Jesus... And reported to him all they had done and taught. So remember, there's been this interlude that Chris talked about last week. About Herod uh, and how uh, he, he threw this banquet at his palace. And, and uh, John the Baptist was ultimately beheaded in that situation. Sort of a flashback. But the previous thing that Ben shared with you uh, two weeks ago. Is that Jesus had sent him out by twos. And you know, said, you've got authority over these things. I want you to spread the good, good news about the kingdom. And so that's what they had done. So they came back and reported. uh, And Jesus was very excited about this. Luke tells us that. But then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. First of all, isn't it encouraging that Jesus cares about our rest? That he cares about our weariness? Even in mission, even on mission. He's not saying, hey, don't go on mission. Don't, don't step out there in faith for me. We'll see that later. He's not saying any of that. He's saying, yeah, go on the mission. But hey, there comes a time when you need a break. There comes a time when you need some rest. So this is the original small group retreat right here. So Jesus says, hey, you know, come on over. Let's go get some rest. And it must have sounded like, you know, music to these guys' ears. Because what Jesus is basically saying is this. The core of being a Jesus follower, of being a true disciple, what we call now resilient Christians, and we've talked about this in the course last few weeks, is. Being with Jesus, okay, that's the core. The mission is the result of experiencing that core. Relationship with Jesus, making sure my schedule in the midst of things, of all the phone calls, of all the Twitter, of all the things the boss wants you to do, of all the things the family needs you to do, of all the things the teacher needs to do at school, whatever, of making sure you got time with Jesus regularly, daily, often. And that's the core of it. It's the relationship Jesus doesn't want to lose. He'll get the mission done, and he'll get it done through you. But he wants to make sure you have time to just be there. But here's the interesting thing. It's not just about individual disciples, is it? In this case. Yes, you need solitude by yourself. Yes, you need quiet time by yourself with the Lord. There's no question about that. But we in this culture, even in Christian subculture in America, have made our relationship with Jesus all about my personal Savior right in here and to get away from me. You know, that kind of thing. And that's not what it is. It's that, it's, it's, except for the get away from me part. It's the solitude, yes, it's my alone time with Jesus, but unless you have an environment of Christians around you who are seeing God work in their life, unless you're together with them on regular basis, then you're not going to be a fully formed, transformed, new life, resilient Christian. You're just not. That's why Jesus says, come and weigh with me, not Peter, James, John, Joseph, Come away with me yourselves. It's plural. It's the family. It's the group. It's the church. And I think that's the point that he's trying to make. I'm going to show you how you're to operate in the rhythms of life together as the, as the people of God, as my people, as my family, Jesus would say. And so Jesus had a plan. But isn't it, it's kind of good to know that even Jesus' plans had to change in this world, Right? Here we go, look at this. So they went away by themselves in a boat in a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed uh, and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So Jesus is here on the North Shore, as I said in the story. You can see everything. If you've ever been to the North Shore of Galilee, you, can, you know that when you just get up there just a little ways, you can see everything going on down there. So it's not surprising that people saw, oh, he's trying to get away. So they start running, you know. And who? I have no idea if the disciples were jumping up and down saying, go back, go back. But you wouldn't blame them, would you? It's like, had enough of you people. Just give us a minute, you know and because they, they were they were they were excited but they were also I- exhausted really and yet jesus has compassion it says on them in verse 35 34 we've seen that before he has compassion this is that greek word that means feeling it in a visceral way in the depths of your being so he he cared for them he had compassion for these crowds that were lost like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion for them. But it was sort of this visceral feeling. It's the Greek word splontna, and the only reason I tell you that is because that's kind of a gross-sounding word, isn't it? Well, it's related to a gross-sounding thing. It means that he, had, he cared for them in his bowels, is what I mean, because it has to do with bowels. I mean, I wouldn't try that at home, right, darling? You have all my bowels. I love you. It's your heart that you really should be talking about, right? I mean, but that's, that's how he felt that deep down, he had the deep guy that made him stop, interrupt his plans, knowing that he was going to take care of the disciples. But it was the disciples who were like, can I have some me time, please? You know, I mean, that's kind of how they work. It had to be. But the reality is, is what Jesus is also trying to teach us, I think, and teach them, is that he sees possibilities where we see impossibilities. He sees... we the possibility of restoring us in the midst of the busyness if that's what it takes. Even though we see this is impossible, just can't be. Kind of reminds me of uh, an encounter I had uh, here in this building, actually. It was way back in the beginning toward when we got in here, but uh, we were seeing a lot of people come through the doors as we often do and we still do today. And um, She came into my office and she'd been with Eastridge for about, eight or ten years. So it's a long time. And uh, she was kind of fumbling around about it, said, well, why don't you just tell me what you're here for? And she said, well, I got to tell you, I'm going to another church now. I'm going go to go with another church where I have a few friends. And I said, well, what's with that? I mean, you don't have friends here? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I got friends, uh, but I'm, um, and, well, did you, does somebody offend you? No, nobody offended. I love you. They always say that. I love you. Uh, I love the church and so forth and so on. Okay. And then finally she came out with it. There are just too many new people. What? There are just too many people. It's very much like this. There's just too many people. I can't even get to my friends on Sunday morning. (laughs) I'm not laughing at her. Uh, I'm just saying, that's exactly the problem with these folks, or that they must have felt, right? But here's the thing. I think this is the principle and the point. The next time you feel like taking a break from Jesus in his mission, don't. Because that probably means you're within a millisecond or a little while or a short distance from seeing him do something amazing that seems not possible to you. Maybe even something miraculous because that's what happens uh, in these guys' lives. Look at this. By this time, it was late in the day so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place. That's the third time it was said. So Mark wants us to understand this is a remote, this is a faraway place. The word literally means desert, but this is not a desert per se. But it is a remote place in one of these amphitheater ravines that they have over there where you wouldn't need a loudspeaker system and people could sit, you know, on the, on the sides of the hill. They said, this is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can get, go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> now think about this. This is a very reasonable and compassionate thing to say, right? Okay, Jesus, you've had your 40-minute sermon. I mean, we let you do that. You know, sometimes you go to 50. But I mean, let's just get that straight. You've had your chance. Now here's the deal. They 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 are famished and it's been great, Jesus. Been, no no question. But they're famished and we don't want somebody fainting on the road. So they're really trying to do a reasonable, compassionate thing. And, they, and then Jesus just sort of throws it out there. Well, uh, you give them something. To eat. It's like what? Are you are you kidding me? I mean, like, what do I look like? Bill Gates or something? I, I imagine this is not in Scripture. This is Dwayne's perverted version right here. So. I imagine that they started arguing among themselves, like especially maybe it was Andrew that got talked them into going to Jesus and saying sending them away uh, because he uh, was, uh, you know, the one who actually found, according to John, he's the one that found the little boy with the five loaves and two fish that we'll see in a minute. And, and I imagine maybe they went after him and, and said, Andrew, we told you we should have just let Jesus down because now we're going to get another one of those talks about how we screwed up, you know? Because it was just, they had to be like, I don't get what you're doing, Jesus. But there's another thing here, too. There's a contrast. Commentators have noticed the contrast between this story and the previous story, the one that Chris did last week about John the Baptist in Herod's temple, or in Herod's palace, rather, where all the ornateness and all the food you could ever want and, and all the power, and it ends up John the Baptist being beheaded. And here they are in a deserted place with dust and dirt and only rocks to sit on. Jesus feeds them bread and fish and they're all satisfied and they go away with a changed life. So who's better off? You know, next time we get kind of enamored with the celebrity culture, next time we get all the glitz and the ah and the ooh, we got to remember this story. Because you know what? That's not going to take us where we want it to take us. Jesus is going to take us where we want to really be. You see, here's another interesting fact. Jesus doesn't go outside this crowd. He doesn't go outside the disciples, really, to solve the problem, does he? Jesus most often resolves problems that we have, resolves challenges that we have in his mission by using what he's already given us. He's already given this church what it needs to take the next steps, to move forward with Him, to, to do what He wants us to do. He's given us the people, the gifts. I believe that for a long time. I've just seen it for the long time, and I'm really starting to see it now. He's given us the gifts and the people and, and, and the, the resources. He's given everything. Maybe it's in you, maybe it's in your neighbor, maybe it's, you know, all that kind of thing. He always gives us what we need. And in this case, there was already some, some food present. And, of course, he's the ultimate resource himself, but that's the reality. It's, and, and, but, but what we do, though, is because, because it's been, you know, years since I've been in this church, because it's been years since I've been a Christian and I received my spiritual gift from him, because it's been years that I've been working with my finances or whatever it is, we don't see it as a miracle because it doesn't happen when it drops right there, boom, when I want it. It happened Weeks ago, years ago, decades ago, maybe. But God always provides everything He wants for a Christian, a resilient person, a resilient Christian to do what He's asking Him to do, a resilient church to do what it's asking it to do. No matter what the culture is going on outside, no matter what's happening, He always gives what we need to do what He's asking us to do. And He wants to do some amazing things. You know, this point before we go on, we should kind of camp on it for just a second because this is a major example of what caused Christianity to go viral and ultimately win the West. This is how the West was won. Was by something that we see in this story going viral through the resilient Christians through the next 250, 300 years and then on beyond all the way up to the 21st century where we are today and you know what it is? It has to do with the compassion of people who, who are Christians who reflected Jesus' compassion. That's not the whole of it, but remember Jesus said, how are people going to know you're my disciples? On the night before he was betrayed, before he went to the cross, he said, okay, here's a new commandment. Love one another as I've loved you, then the whole world's going to know that you are my disciples. Have love, compassion for one another, and they're going to see it. And they took that to mean what it really meant, have compassion for one another in our church family, but also for those who are outside. And let it reflect outside. And that's actually what brought Christianity down to us. So let me give you one major example, and then we're going to move on. About 250, a little over later, years later, there was a guy who came to the throne of, uh, uh, of Rome, the emperor of Rome, the new Caesar of Rome, named Constantine. And Constantine, through a series of circumstances, one of which his wife became a Christian, he didn't have a chance. His wife became a Christian, and then Constantine had these dreams and these experiences, and he became a Christian, at least in part because he was still worshiping his old gods. But he made Christianity the official religion of the empire, which is exactly what we're going to see. Some of these people on this hillside back in Galilee wanted in the first place, they wanted Jesus to conquer the empire but it wasn't the way that he was talking about. They wanted something else. They wanted to be, you know, they wanted a secular kingdom or a Jewish kingdom or, or whatever kind of ideology kingdom. And so, so Constantine takes over the empire and sends his wife to Jerusalem. She finds the sites where Jesus was born, builds the nativity church. It, you can still see uh, that today. It builds the um, uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You can still see that today. And so she, she uh, you know, comes back, and, and he has a, a, quite a long reign. And, of course, you've probably heard of Constantine because he's a big deal in history. He's like a turning point in history, in Western history. But shortly after Constantine uh, died, then another guy came in. His name was Julian. And Julian became known as the Julian the Apostate <laughs> because he was constantly fighting with Christians. And, and, and there's a reason for that, but what's weird about that is that he was raised by Christian parents. But he became Caesar, and he didn't reign very long. It was only about three and a half years. It didn't work out very well for, for Julian. But the reality is, he was trying to bring Rome back to the pagan gods. You know, Jove, the Pantheon, all those gods. He was trying to do the old pagan religion again. And trying to get rid of Christianity, because he didn't want it to be uh, the, 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 the state religion. And, and, and just so we say it clearly, hopefully we will never be the state religion of America, by the way because when we become the state religion, that's when things go pfft for true spirituality. So that's, we're not saying that, that's another story. But Julian was doing it because he wanted him to be pagan. So he was pouring money upon money, uh, it was piles of money into uh, uh, temples, pagan temples, and the pagan priesthood. And toward the end of his reign, his short three-year reign, because it didn't work because the guy came in after him, you know, it was like Christianity on steroids for that guy. So Julian was trying to stop Christianity, and he was so frustrated, he wrote a letter to one of his high priests of the pagan religion that in that letter, he describes what made Christianity go viral. And what's interesting is, is it links up directly what Jesus told us to do, and he said, love others as I love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love one another as I've loved you. Look at this. Here's the, here's the letter. When, why then do we think that this is enough why do we not observe that it is their benevolence that is Christian's benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and pretended holiness, he didn't think our holiness was real, of their lives that have done most to increased atheism, he called Christianity atheism because it wasn't his god, so atheism. I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues, that is Christian virtues. <laughs> For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans support not only their poor but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Then the people will know who you really belong to by what they see. That's it. And that's why it went viral. And I think that part of that is what Jesus is starting here. He's launching that revolution of compassion which is why he wanted his disciples to stick around, which is why he wanted them to feed them. He wasn't being cheeky with them. He wasn't trying to put them on the spot. I mean, what did he just done? He'd given them power over demons. He'd given them power over healing. I mean, you know, I just wonder what would happen. This is, again, totally Dwayne speculation here. But what would have happened if Peter or John had sat down and gotten that bread and started to break it? Okay, okay, Jesus, I'm going to break the bread. You know, would they have been able to do the same thing with Jesus there? I don't know. But he wasn't being, he was just saying, look, I want you to do what I'm doing. I want you to to show that kind of compassion over and over again. But look what happened. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages, which is true. I mean, uh, that's like $10,000 in our money, which we say, you know, in in our part of the world, in Happy Valley here, it's like, okay, well, that's a lot, but it's not like the end of the world. Yeah, for them, it was the end of the world. It was like uh, two-thirds of a year's wage and some of the other places, in literal translation of this is, is 2,000 denarii. You get like a denarii a day for working in those days. And these guys were unemployed fishermen. They didn't have time to go to their boats. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and to give it to them, to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. So Andrew goes out, comes back, along with the rest of them. According to John, when they found out, they said five loaves, that is, and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have them, uh, all the people, sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, (laughs) taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up into heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people he also divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and the number of the men who had eaten was 5000 you see they were looking at their lack but Jesus was looking at what they possessed he wants us to look not at what we lack but what he's already given us, what we have he's already provided, what we already possess in that sense. See, what I think he's trying to help us understand is he can take the smallest, seemingly most insignificant lives, the most smallest and most insignificant uh, gifts, and he can multiply those gifts if we make them available to him. Doesn't matter. He can take the s- smallest gift and multiply it and, and make it the, the thing that just, Changes the world. That means every gift counts. That means every second counts. That means every invitation of being hospitable to somebody. Of opening your life and giving them five minutes. And listening to them. It all counts. Even the smallest thing he can do. Miraculous things. And we see that here. Because where it says the number of the men was 5,000. Well, that doesn't just mean, that means just men. That, that's what the term means. That's why it's men in here. Because Matthew tells us it wasn't just the 5,000 was the man number, but there were, man, there were women and children there too. So some of them brought their families. How many? We don't know. But it could be, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10,000 people. That, that's a lot from seven loaves and two fish. That, that's, that's some pretty amazing physics right there. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you just trust me a little bit more, that's what I can do. Even with the smallest and the least. So as we go to uh, communion today, as we wrap this up over the next 10 minutes, I just want to give you three lenses or three ways to see Jesus that I think are in this story that are really critical for us at this time but also critical for us in understanding who Jesus is in this story. critical for us as we come to communion. Here, here's the thing. Uh, there are three phrases or three things that are said in here that point us in that direction. The first one is Jesus is the good shepherd. And when you see these three more clearly from the book of John, by the way, his rendition, a more expanded story, because he tells us some things that Mark doesn't tell us and Matthew doesn't even tell us. But he tells us some things about what happened next that we need to to kind of understand. And one of those things is that he's the good shepherd. Remember he says, "Uh, I seeing them uh, like um, I am the, uh, they are lost and like sheep without a shepherd. What maybe you didn't know though is that sheep without a shepherd was a phrase that was used by military leaders. Some of the Roman commanders used it. Some of the, the rebel zealot commanders used it who you know, were picking, looking for roving bands of you know, freedom fighters. They would step up and use that phrase and say, hey, you guys are like leaderless sheep. I'll be your shepherd. So that was a common phrase in that day and in particular in that northern region of the Sea of Galilee because that is where the zealot movement started. This guy named Judas the Zealot started it uh, in that town in Gamala up on the eastern slope of the Golan Heights in, in 6 AD. His son became great freedom fighters too, but they didn't conquer Rome. Nope. They didn't conquer um, uh, the, the Herods, even though they fought against them. They didn't conquer Herod's sons. No, nope. they wound up in a mess. First of all, uh, Judas's sons in the south uh, wound up committing suicide as the Romans were coming up a makeshift ramp that they built up onto this mountain called Masada. Some of us have been there. And his sons committed suicide there. Four years later in 70 AD, Judas himself was in Gamala and the people of Gamala had the Romans coming up and, and circling them and they did the same thing. A very tragic story. But the zealots, in this case, they would have thought that, you know, Jesus was going to be their king. I mean, he'd been talking about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, ad nauseum for crying out loud. The kingdom of God is here. So they heard that as that was a dog whistle for them, that, hey, you know what, this is the guy. This is the guy that's going to lead us. And then they see Jesus do this miracle. It's no wonder, right? I mean, you can imagine being one of Jesus' disciples in particular. It's not a surprise that Jesus had a zealot then in his group. Simon the Zealot. Remember when we've talked about him? Remember when we saw the list of who was in there? Simon the Zealot was just—you know—there were these zealots running around, you know, secret, secret warriors against Rome, and and. and And Judas would have been there this day and Jesus did this thing and and the, the, the guys came forward and tried to make him be king. That's one of the things John tells us. Look at this. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew. He was able to slip away. Withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Isn't that interesting? I mean, they they are these zealots we are going to try to make him by force. They, they came to Judas, you know, his old zealot buddies. Hey, Judas, is this the time? Is he going to do it? No, no, no. Guys, you don't understand. Well, then maybe we'll force make it by force. No, no, no. Yeah, he's about a revolution, but it's not the revolution you want. It's a revolution of the heart. It's a revolution of compassion. It's going to make all the world, all the difference in the world, it's bigger than some military thing because a military thing, you're you're going to have oppression again. You're going to have some punk get in the kingdom and the throne again. You're going to have something. It's just not going to, this is for the whole world. This is going to change everything. You need to understand, and sure enough, it did change everything. Sure enough, it did come to the point of that compassion breaking out and becoming the very thing that they longed for and the very thing they hoped for. They just didn't see how. And they were trying to make him king. So you can see how it confronts, how, how would Jesus, this, this revolution of the kingdom of God confronts the reigning culture. And there's a disconnect with the culture. So sometimes when you feel that, that's what you're feeling. And that's what Simon the Zealot must have felt. But the other thing that, that Jesus says in John chapter 6, right after this miracle, is he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the sustenance of life. And, and look what John tells us Jesus said. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So he's saying, look, I'm, I'm telling you what. I'm the bread of life. I'm your sustenance. You can, you can see why the early church, the early Christians, they linked this story up with the story of the communion that we're going to take in a bit, the last supper. Because I mean, just look at the practicalities. Look at the structure of it. I mean, Jesus looks up into heaven, prays, which is how they prayed, and breaks the bread, breaks the fish, and then he hands it to them and he "Here, I don't want you to be famished. Here, take care of this. This is, this is for you." And then, at the Last Supper, what does Jesus do? He looks up into heaven, he prays, he takes the bread, he breaks it, and he said, "This is my body, which is broken for you. This is your sustenance." And this is the cup, which represents his lifeblood. This is for you, sustenance. So the early church, if you go to the Roman um, catacombs in Rome, you can see that they, they did frescoes, and they linked up these two sto- stories between the two because it was all about Jesus being our sustenance. It wasn't about whatever we've got and how good we can be for Jesus. It wasn't about any of that. It wasn't about, you know, what we think we can do without Jesus. No, it was about, all about him. And that leads us to the third kind of lens, the third way to see Jesus through this story that we need before we go to communion. And that is this, that Jesus prods us to trust him just a bit more than we think we can, just outside the comfort zone. He asks us, he prods us To do that. And that doesn't fit with everybody, does it? Because if we're in another space, if we're not in the space of whatever you want, Jesus, we're not going to be resilient. We're not going to be elastic to that. Watch this. This is how John ends that kind of section in chapter 6 that includes this story. On hearing it, many of his disciples, hearing Jesus' teaching, said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now notice that's the disciples. That's not the crowds. It's not the pagan hordes. It's his followers, some of whom couldn't accept it. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? (laughs) Not, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. No, does this offend you? Because this is sort of the demarcation line here. Are you willing to trust me a little bit more? Because, I mean, right after that, he looks at the other disciples, the 12, and he he goes, so are you guys going to leave too? Because these people just take off, they leave. Not all the disciples, but a good chunk of them. He thinned the crowd, thinned the herd quite a bit this day. <laughs> he looks up and, of course, Peter, Peter speaks up. He says, uh, Jesus, where are we going to go? We've given everything for you. We're unemployed fishermen. Where are we going to go? Right? And, and that, was, that was a turning point for them. And it's a turning point for us when Jesus says, will you just trust me a little bit more? Because you come right up to that level, right up to that moment where you're right there. You see, that's how Jesus worked. And it's no wonder people get so disenchanted with their faith because Jesus doesn't do it the way they want him to do it, on time, the way they expect him to do it. But if you think about it, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would be at our beck and call when we pull the chain, boom, he does it exactly the way and exactly the time when we want him to? Doesn't mean that it's not hard. Doesn't mean that it's not a struggle. But if you just trust me a little bit more, a little while longer, you're going to be amazed at what I can do. That's the nature of resilience. And please understand me. I am not blaming anybody. I'm not ripping anybody. I'm, fo- I'm pointing five figures back at myself right now. Because recently, this week, I have been asked to give them something to eat. I've been asked, I've been asked to give you something to eat this morning, but... I mean, I've been asked to give them something to eat by Jesus, and I I have no idea where it's going to come from. You see, Sharon got on a plane Friday to go on another medical mission, and as as she did, I mean, the last two weeks have been, uh, well, they've been from the bad place. I mean, it felt like from the bad place. It's just not, I, I, I dread it. I hate, 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 hate those last two weeks. See, we, we made this agreement a long time ago, like 20, 23 years ago, that she should go on these missions because, you know, I get the, the, the benefit, I get the blessing of knowing that she's touching people and literally saving lives. And not just saving physical lives, but she has a chance to share with Christ and she meets believers over there wherever she goes and that sort of thing. And she's, she uh, gets to go on the, these uh, medical mission trips and, and uh, I, I just, uh, uh, very, very much modern day trips like the disciples had just been on. But, but the reality is, is that, you know, the, we both thought the older we got, the easier this would be because you kind of get used to somebody. Oh, yeah, sure, go across the world. That's fine, you know. But it's worse. And that's why I dread it. I hate it. I'm glad for what she's doing. So is she. But it's tough. I mean <laughs> And please understand me. I'm not telling you this so that you can say, oh, the poor pastor, man, the poor little, f- you're such a fuzzy good husband. I mean, that's just a tweet. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that because it's the exact opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. It's not right. You just, you give him something to eat. Right? I mean, because here's the, here's the thing that happened to me, as we uh, get our last kiss at the airport and you know, uh, didn't care what anybody else saw, two older people kissing, this, who cares, uh, and I go up to the, the, the at the, the gate she was at, there's this, this barbershop at the very end of the, the line that is on the other side of the tape, and you can go back in this barbershop and see, but I was just kind of looking through the windows, just watching her go, and this, the, this, the nice barber man, <laughs> He said, You can come in here, man. Come on, come on into my lobby. I said, No, no, it's okay. No, come on in. I, I said, Well, she's gonna be gone for four and a half weeks. Oh man, I understand. Come on in. And so I came in there and went and waved goodbye and you know, got kind of mopey walking back to the escalators and into the parking lot, and all of a sudden a thought came into my head. Didn't hear a voice, I want you to understand that. A thought came into my head. Do you trust me? <laughs> Yeah, I trust you. Of course, I'm a pastor, for crying out loud. I mean, yeah, I trust you. Well, didn't, didn't we all agree that this was the mission 23 years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I believe it, I'm so glad that you can. I really am so forth. It's just hard. Well, you just trust me a little bit more and see what I can do. You see, I'm going to call... Uh, Andy out here to get us, kind of start, help us with communion, and I, uh, we're going to share together in communion, and And uh, if you're looking for gluten-free, it's over there. If you're not a believer, or you're not sure what this means yet, you're welcome to just stay in your seat. It's not a problem. Uh, nobody's going to look weird at you, not in this church. In fact, nobody will even notice, because we're all up and around moving. Uh, But for those of us who are, this is the the feast for the believers, that Lord's Supper that he gives us that's patterned after this story and this miracle and the miracle of what he does in our lives. Uh, I want to ask you to take the elements and bring them back to the seat and I'll come back out and we'll do that together. But here's what I want to say at the end of this whole thing. There is one thing I do not want to have happen in my life and I hope you don't want to have it happen in your life. One thing that at the end when I meet Jesus in eternity... Here's what I don't want to have happen. I don't want them to take me off the side and say, hey, come here, Dwayne, come here, come here. Take me over to a, like a jumbotron or a big screen thing or whatever. I don't know what they have in eternity, but something like that. And I don't want them to look at me and say, Dwayne, I'm going to show you what I could have done in your life while you were on earth if you just trusted me a little bit more. Ugh, not gonna, don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear any of that. And that's kind of what I relearned and woke up to this week. And I'm hoping all of us can through what he does and what he did in these disciples' lives when he basically said the same thing. Look, if you just trust me a little bit more, you won't believe what I can do in and through your life. Let's prepare ourselves by remembering, by breaking together, bread together. And whatever it is you need to, to think about and give to him as you come in here this morning, the Lord knows what it is already. So pray with me as we pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for coming for us. We thank you for coming for us. We thank you for stretching us and not letting us live in, in lives that are just, you know, kind of what we want and our thing, but, but you, you push us a little bit. You encourage us a lot to trust you a little bit more. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your presence here today because I think you're doing that for us. You're doing it for many of us as individuals, but you're also doing it for us as a church family because we're your family. And as we share together in the reality of what you did by giving your life and breaking your body and shedding your blood to forgive our sins, And then you didn't just leave it there. You rose from the dead so that we could spend eternity in that relationship with you, which is the ground of all existence and all what it means to be full of life. You're still here. And you're alive. We thank you for that, Lord. But as we go to communion today, help us to do the business with you we need to do that only you know we need. It's in your name we pray. We love you, Jesus. Amen. So this is the thing that Jesus said to us, um, that uh, this is his body which is broken for us. In our tradition, we don't believe that Jesus actually inhabits these wafer things, but it all really works out the same. We kind of argue among ourselves in the church. The reality is, is what he's saying is when we obey him, his presence is here with us. And In fact, I kind of have the sense we might have run out of elements today. The group, we're glad you're here, but please understand that your obedience in doing that, that's what this is about. So you're involved in this too if if you weren't able to get some. But when he says, my body is broken for you, and we take this waiver and we, we do this worship moment, he actually does do something significant and special for us. This is his body, broken for you. And he not only fills us with his presence, but he, he, he forgives our sins. He not only forgives our sins by breaking his body, but he gives us his lifeblood, which is what this juice, or in his case, the wine, represents. A new life, living life from now on in eternal life, which is a quality life, not just a length of life. And so he says, this cup I give you, as my blood, which means as my life in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for doing that for us. We thank you for breaking the bread for us. We thank you for breaking your body for us. Thank you for shedding your blood for us. May we go from this place with a new understanding of what it means to trust you about that a little bit more, that it is a powerful, real-life, everyday experience of your presence. And may you make us resilient in that, whatever comes this week, the good as well as otherwise. And may we understand, just like those early Christians befuddled Julian, that you have given us your presence in such a way That we can do battle against the enemy of darkness using your goodness as the weapon. Give us that grace. Give us that understanding. Open our eyes to what that means in each of our individual lives. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.